I want to talk tonight about the quality of sympathetic joy to expand upon the practice that you began yesterday. And I actually had the occasion today to practice a little sympathetic joy when a friend called me from Malibu, California and took the opportunity to tell me that it was 70 degrees in Malibu (laughs) and that she was sitting by the ocean watching the glistening pattern of light move and change as she sat in the 70 degree air watching that ocean swell and she said, there haven't been any dolphins yet but I think probably soon And I thought, gee, that's funny. I'm giving a talk tonight on sympathetic joy. (laughs) And it's zero degrees or something like that here. (laughs) Here we go. Another opportunity (laughs) to practice. Sympathetic joy, as Marcia described, is known in Pali as mudita, which means to be pleased or to be glad. In fact, the Buddha called it the mind deliverance of gladness, because this force, this particular quality of happiness can actually liberate us, can deliver our minds from the uh, habits that normally constrict and limit us. The quality of sympathetic joy is being able to actually rejoice, to take happiness, to be delighted in the happiness of others. It's not just giddiness and being excited for no good reason. It's based on being able to take this kind of delight when we see that someone else is doing well, that they're successful or they're having good fortune, that they're happy. And it means that we, in practicing it, challenge some of our deepest assumptions about aloneness and about our place in this world, our feelings of loss or deprivation, our ideas about happiness. It's really a tremendous challenge. The Buddha said, in a battle, the winners and the losers both lose. The losers lose in obvious ways because they've lost territory or family members or riches and and they live in that state of, of shock and distress. But the winners also lose because they live in fear, knowing that having gotten what they've gotten through conquering, through violence in effect, that just one turn of the wheel and their situation can be completely different. It's very uncertain, it's very unsettled. And so living in fear is, is its own kind of suffering, even though nominally, in terms of appearance, they've won. So to liberate ourselves from that true and deep abiding sense of loss, we need to remove ourselves from feeling embattled all of the time, feeling that we're engaging in a battle. And in terms of sympathetic joy, that particularly means that we're no longer engaging in a battle with others, trying to, in some way, bolster how we feel about ourselves and our situation by wishing that people just had a little bit less going for them, or feeling resentful, feeling envious, feeling cut off, feeling jealous. When we see that somebody is enjoying 
some kind of happiness or good fortune. And as His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, it only makes sense to practice sympathetic joy because if we practice feeling happiness about the happiness of others, then the odds of our experiencing happiness increase about six billion to one. And as he went on to say, those are very good odds. So being able to rejoice in the happiness of others, to actually take delight instead of falling completely under the sway of that voice which arises and says, oh no, you know, this is sort of unbearable to see you doing so well. To, to be able to actually feel happy for others' happiness is based on several conditions. One is developing, engendering, and nurturing a sense of connection. As the poet Wendell Berry once said, the smallest unit of health is a community. Health in this sense, meaning healing, the, the smallest unit of healing is a community. It's not something that is done apart by oneself for oneself. Community means connection, it means the recognition that we do exist as part of a whole, as part of a, a greater fabric. <clears throat> That's actually the nature of things. We can't have that sense of joy in the happiness of others without a firm foundation that is continually renewed, that reminds us of how connected, in fact, we are. I once had this kind of funny experience where um, some years ago I went to Israel to teach and had several weeks actually before the retreat was going to begin. So I was staying in somebody's apartment in Jerusalem and went to the Western Wall, once known as the Wailing Wall, which is a, a very sacred site in Judaism where you take prayers or wishes or aspirations that have been written down on a piece of paper and you put the prayer in a crack in the wall so I went and did that, and I also had many people who asked me to do that on their behalf. And I wrote, I wrote all of this out, folded up the piece of paper, and placed it in a crack in the wall. Then I went back the next day, and for no good reason whatsoever, I decided, based on nothing, that it was more efficacious, it was, it was of greater benefit if the piece of paper stayed in the wall that it didn't fall down to the ground or something like that. So based on nothing, I just decided this. So I went the next day and went to approximately the same place where I had placed the piece of paper the day before and kind of looked to see if it was still there. And I saw it, so I thought, oh good, it's still there. You know, prayers are doing well. So. And then I left and I went back the next day and checked on my piece of paper. and. I wasn't quite so sure. I mean, a piece of paper is a little hard to distinguish one from the other. 
always, and I kind of looked and I thought, I'm not so sure, maybe he's not doing so well. Maybe this isn't such a good sign. And I went back the next day and began the routine again of checking for my piece of paper when the folly of it all struck me and I realized, you know, it doesn't matter. The whole point is that all of us were writing out these heartfelt wishes, we were opening ourselves in some way. And to imagine that mine was different from everyone else's and needed to be sequestered and protected was really absurd. It's like we're all standing there in some way, together, in some spot, some, if not physical spot, some psychological spot like that, and really wanting to be happy, wanting something in the nature of peace. And we're not so very different. We see this when we are facing difficulty, when we feel the fragility of life, And hopefully we also see this when we're feeling our own happiness, when we're feeling a sense of joy or contentment. I had another strange experience just a couple of years ago when I had been quite sick all winter with um, bronchitis that just wouldn't ever go away. And finally, after months, really months of being very sick, I got better and I was living in New York City Um, in an apartment someone had given me. I was walking down the street one day when I heard a woman's voice saying, I was really sick all winter. So naturally I was kind of intrigued and I turned around and she was talking to a, a street person just sitting on the ground and she said to him, I was really sick all winter. I had pneumonia several times and I just couldn't get better. But I'm finally starting to get better and I just want to share the joy and she was giving him a whole bunch of money. And I looked at that and I thought, wow, I was really sick all winter too. You know, I just walked by this guy. It didn't actually occur to me to share the joy. So I stood there for a moment and I thought, well, should I turn to him and say, hey, I was really sick too, you know? Like, let me give you more money or, you know, give someone else money or... Um, but that so much isn't the point. It's not the action you know, whether it's appropriate or inappropriate to give somebody money is based on a lot of other considerations that have to do with awareness and context and so on. But it's that movement of the heart that says, I want to share the joy. It says, this person sitting on the street has something to do with me, that my life and his life are connected. You're not so separate. We need that kind of understanding to build the foundation for the experience of sympathetic joy. And then, the second condition, you might say, is a sense of inner abundance. Because if we feel we have nothing to give, we will never give. And sympathetic joy is a practice of generosity. It's like we're giving that energy of delight, of happiness, of sharing. If we feel that happiness is somehow a limited commodity in this universe and the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for us, then we will not be able to take delight in the happiness of others. We will naturally feel resentful and upset and threatened. 
we have to feel we have some conduit to happiness ourselves for sympathetic joy to even be possible. And so one of the bases of doing that practice is really learning how to see with more gratitude and more thankfulness. To understand that always we have something to give. If not materially, then in terms of our energy, it doesn't deplete us to give. It, in fact, connects us even further to the fact that we do have something within that isn't going to be broken. It's not going to be disturbed because somebody else gets something. Somebody else has some happiness. It is a practice of generosity to be able to practice sympathetic joy. And that's a really fantastic reflection. What allows us to be generous? What allows us to open to care, to offer, rather than to feel we have to hoard what we have and clutch it and keep it? and to resent the intrusion of others. It's clearly not something external if we look carefully. You know, it's been such an amazing experience to go to other cultures, say Burma, where, and people may have mentioned this earlier in the retreat, but when we went to practice meditation in Burma, we were never ever charged for anything. We weren't charged for room and board even because the people of the country were so honored and excited that somebody would be practicing meditation that they would come and feed you so that every single bite of food you had when you were there meditating was an offering from somebody. Burma, of course, is an extremely poor country. It's, It's devastatingly poor. And people would always offer just the best of what they could afford. And sometimes it wasn't very much. But they were so moved to, they used to come and watch us eat. And they would be sitting there, just dressed really poorly. And sometimes the food was, it was really meager. And they were so happy at having given the gift that It was incredible to receive in that way, really the generosity of someone's heart, offering the best that they could. And then to come back here to this culture where in so many places there's a lot, there's quite a lot, and yet not everybody by any means has that same inner sense that they have something to give. And so there's all that withholding and greed and grasping It's amazing to see that it's not an external measure of when when generosity happens. It's really something quite internal. And we see it, all of us, at different times in ourselves, in our practice, like when we do loving-kindness practice. A lot of times people will say to me, well, I chose some great being, like say the Dalai Lama, as my benefactor, and I was offering him metta, and then I realized, he doesn't need my metta, <laughs> you know? What does he need my metta for? It's like nothing. And we're back to that state of where, you know, it's worthless. What I have to give is worthless, so I won't. 
First of all, we don't know he doesn't need our metta. <laughs> and second of all, why do we just assume that it's a, a measly kind of contribution, that it's not worth anything? And we need to join these two, the reflection and the understanding that we always have something to give, that it's born from this sense of inner fulfillment, inner completion, or inner abundance, and our connection to other beings, in fact, to all beings. That's what makes for the flowering of a quality like generosity or sympathetic joy. And if we make the effort, if we turn our minds in that direction, then, and it's sincere, then even without a great rush of feeling, like, wow, I am so happy you're happy, even without that, just doing that, turning our minds in that direction, brings us back in touch with these two roots, that we have something to give and that we're all connected. That's why it's so powerful even when we may not feel in a particular sitting, a particular practice session, that it's glorious and we're just swept away by the force of mudita. This is, even if it's extremely subtle, this is what we're being reminded of, is these two roots. I was thinking about that today. I was preparing the talk because I was thinking about this somewhat peculiar and sometimes difficult to understand teaching of the Buddhas, where he suggests that if you're very angry at somebody that you give them a gift, which on the face of it is a little odd, you know, what will that accomplish? But actually, I think it's, it's sort of connected to this, because when we're angry at somebody, obviously we feel cut off and separate and distant. We're recoiling, we're pushing away. And if we give them a gift, then in a moment, it's like, oh, there's a connection. There's something underneath the barriers that have been erected. And we're also, in the giving, reminded of our own wholeness, our own completeness, as we do that. So these are the first two roots of being able to practice sympathetic joy the sense of inner abundance, and the understanding of connection. And then the third is actually, in the Buddhist psychology, the proximate cause, or the nearest arising condition for sympathetic joy to come up in the mind, and that is being able to see happiness. If we are in the habit of overlooking happiness, then it's not going to be very easy to have sympathetic joy. And so the beginning of the actual practice is being able to tune into, being able to open to happiness, both our own, so that we have that sense of inner abundance and gratitude, ability to give, and certainly others. Otherwise, the occasion for sympathetic joy will not arise. It reminds me a little bit of once a group of us were sitting with one of our teachers named Manindra and asked him why he practiced mindfulness. 
He said in response, I think I at least, and I think maybe all of us were expecting a, a kind of ponderous, profound answer, like very heavy, you know. Um, like I practice mindfulness for something very exalted and extreme. And in fact, what he said in response to the question was, I practice mindfulness so that when I'm walking down the road, I won't miss the little purple flowers that are growing along the wayside. Which is also true. It may not be the only reason we practice mindfulness, but there's something about that, about not missing the joyful things and the the beautiful aspects of life, even in a philosophical system that talks about suffering so very much. Since the purpose of life is not to suffer, but to come to the end of suffering, some of that begins with learning how to actually notice our own happiness and the happiness of others, because there's balance there. We can't only be coming in touch with what is difficult. We have to be balancing that by coming in touch with what is joyous. Because it's not that suffering by itself is redemptive in Buddhism. It's the opening that is redemptive, that's freeing. There's no point in just suffering and suffering and suffering. But opening with a free heart, with an open heart, with metta and so on, that's what's freeing. And so we open to suffering and we open to joy. We open to happiness. And here again, somebody like the Dalai Lama is such a, a wonderful example. I can remember, I heard Joseph mention the time we were at the Buddhist Christian Conference at Gethsemane Abbey with the Dalai Lama. And I remember um, the ceremony, be, the conference began with a ceremony of a, a tree planting. And um, there was the PBS crew that was filming the Dalai Lama that was all gathered around and there was his security and it was quite a lot going on as usual, and um, all of the residents of Gethsemane gathered, and all of the Buddhists were there, and across this crowd, the Dalai Lama spied an ancient monk sitting in a wheelchair, and he called out in great delight, oh, he's really old. (laughs) And it wasn't like, ooh, you know, (laughs) he's really old, and I'm going to get old someday, and it was, he was so excited, and he made a dash. He went running over to him, and like the camera crew's following, the security's following, and everyone's running after him. And he, just, he was so excited that this, this monk was so extremely old. There's a way of taking delight in things that is very unusual. You know, it wasn't, I'm sure, delight in the monk's infirmities or whatever, but the fact that he had lived, that he'd seen so much, that he'd practiced so long. It was a a source of genuine happiness for the Dalai Lama. And we see it a lot in countries, again, like Burma, where to rejoice in goodness is an active practice. 
whether it's a good deed that you have done or if it's a good deed that someone else has done. You actually take a moment to rejoice in that. It's not the same as <clears throat> conceit or arrogance or bragging or, you know, thinking, oh, I'm so great. But it is a state of really delighting in the goodness that can flow. So, for example, in Burma, when every meal is an offering and we're not paying for anything, what we would do as a custom would be that each of us, each of the Westerners practicing there, would ourselves offer a meal so that we were feeding everybody on a given day or a given meal. And very often, as it's customary in Burma, when it's your birthday, not to receive gifts, but to give gifts. So if I was there once on my birthday, and so I offered the meal on my birthday, that was the way it was celebrated, by the opportunity to give. And they have a custom where they put the names of the donors on a blackboard in the morning out in front of the dining room so that everybody knows who's offered the meal so that everyone can rejoice. You know, and people come up to me and they say, I'm so happy for you, you know, that you had the chance to offer the meal. And that's so terrific that you did that, and, you know, and thank you. And, but not thank you because you fed me, but thank you because you expressed that, you manifested that power of goodness. And, and they're so happy, you know, and, and uh, it's actually a practice to take delight when other people do good, which is not a bad practice to, to cultivate. In order to really practice sympathetic joy, in a way we have to make a leap we have to really make a shift because it's very easy just to go on in the old habits of feeling so separate and feeling so alone and feeling so deprived, like we have nothing worth offering. It's very easy to go along feeling separate, jealous, envious, resentful. We have to really try to make that shift. We have to want to make that shift. And then the practice is just like practice, you know. It just takes time. But it's the intention, it's the motivation in the mind that is the most important thing. In the Buddhist scriptures, they, they use this um, kind of odd parable, which is that uh, kind of monkey trap where in order to trap a monkey, some tar is spread on the ground and a monkey then comes along and steps in the tar with one foot which gets stuck because the, the tar is so sticky and in trying to extricate itself, in trying to free itself, the monkey puts down another foot and then a hand and then another hand and then finally its head. At that point it's a completely stuck monkey. And that parable is used to describe us. <laughs> when we are in the habit of perpetuating those tormenting states of mind, like jealousy and comparing 
discriminating, and so on. And we have just one foot down. Rather than put the next foot down in the same patch, if we just reach a hand out and grab a tree, we can hoist ourselves off. That's the opportunity we have not to just keep going in the same old way, but to recognize that we're getting stuck, we're getting trapped in old habits, and to actually use the opportunity to make that shift. And again, it's not necessarily a shift in feeling. We're not necessarily filled with great delight instantly, like, I am so happy you are happy, but it's the shift in our motivation, it's our intention, it's aiming the mind. That's the nature of these practices of the Brahma-viharas, to learn how to aim the mind in a direction that will free us rather than harm us. So as Marcia mentioned, sympathetic joy of the four Brahma-viharas is often considered the most difficult. I know some people um, say that it's not a problem for them, and I feel very envious. <laughs> no, <laughs> I feel a lot of sympathetic joy for that, because uh, it is a beautiful quality. It's a very beautiful quality, and we all, I think, know that from, even if we don't feel it terribly often ourselves, but from when we have been the recipients of sympathetic joy when something really good has happened for us or we're enjoying some success or um, we're just particularly happy and, and some people look at us and they are so happy for our happiness and you can tell, they really are. And it feels like a very great gift is being given to one. Whereas in that same situation of our good fortune or success, somebody else might look at us and they're not so very pleased, you know, no matter what they say. It, it pretty much shows that they're not really all that happy, that we're so happy. And the way that feels and how deflating that is and, and hurtful that is, you can see how very beautiful the quality of sympathetic joy is. If it comes naturally or more naturally, then that's wonderful. If not, and even if so, we have a practice to enhance it and to make it more steadfast, more steady, more enduring. It's considered one of the most difficult because of the very many obstacles that tend to come up in our minds that are our habits of mind that keep us from being able to open to others in this way. One is the state of judgment, which is a big habit. It's very easy to believe, or even at times, in a way to insist that other people should behave the way we want them to, that they should pursue lifestyles and sources of happiness in just the way we've laid out for them in the master plan. And we can actually feel quite disgruntled or frustrated when they just go on and live their lives the way they want to, not the way we want them to. Be non- to be non-judgmental doesn't mean to be 
ridiculous or stupid. You know, it doesn't mean that we practice sympathetic joy when somebody is doing horrific acts and seems to be getting a lot of happiness from them. There's wisdom at the basis of this as well. I'm not talking about somebody who's really hurting themselves or hurting others and, and urging, taking delight in that because they think they're happy. But quite different from that, there's a quality of judgment we tend to carry about, which is not just discriminating understanding, but really judgment, which is based on our wanting to be right and to feel right and to feel that certain special something when we're sure we're right. At which point the the people we are looking at are not really like people, they're more like objects to us at at that moment. From that vantage point, when we're lost in judgment, we can't have sympathetic joy because we're very determined to see things happen our way, and we feel quite affronted when they don't. Like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I actually had this experience once, more than once, but once, that I wrote about, um, where somebody came to me who was going to take his father on a trip and he wanted to take him to India. And I said, you know, I don't think that's such a good idea. You know, it's very intense over there, and you know, he might get sick, and this, you know, it's hard, and hard things to see. And I mean, it's a wonderful place, but I'm not sure that's where I'd go for a family vacation, you know, and um, food, and you know, and I just went on, and then the bugs, and, and, uh, he went anyway, and his father had like the best time of his entire life. You know, he absolutely loved it. And then he came back, and my friend and told me this story, and it was an interesting moment. You know, do I feel happiness and practice happiness for their happiness, or do I feel that kind of squeamishness of not having, first, not having been listened to, and second of all, having given the wrong advice? <laughs> You know, which was more important, my being right or their being happy? Which is the the question we confront very often. To practice sympathetic joy, we have to learn to let go somewhat of our judgments, not to demand that the world perform according to our view, to recognize that people may choose to live in ways different than what we would choose for them. And again, I'm not talking about people really harming themselves or harming others, but really just questions of choice. Can we actually be happy for them as we see the choices that they are making and if they are genuinely happy themselves? So judgment is the first obstacle that's very common. And the second is comparing, which I talked about last week, that gnawing, painful restlessness that is known in the Buddhist psychology as conceit. No matter what we decide in the act of comparing, it's still that restless state, whether we decide we're better than, equal to, or less than the object of our comparison. If we're looking at somebody in that light, trying to decide who we are compared to them, We just can't feel sympathetic joy for them. I mean, how could we? It's 
feels like it's leaving us with nothing. So we need to learn to not just put another foot down in the same patch of comparison all the time and to actually aim the mind somewhere else, a different way of relating. And then there's the problem of discrimination, of having the group of the few select ones that we really open to, that we really care about, that we perhaps can feel happiness for when they are happy. And then beyond that line, there is the great other. There is everybody else that we really don't want to feel happy for. If we can see that, that we've drawn that line, that we are creating division and separation, then we can relax. We can check in again with our deepest motivation, what we really want more fundamentally. This isn't an act of force. It's not trying to slap a persona on us that we're not really feeling. It's recognizing the tremendous capacity and potential of the human mind, everyone's mind. And to see that we have the possibility of learning to relate in a different way. And in doing that, we can begin to loosen some of the the boundaries that we have erected. So for example, when I was practicing in Burma, when I was doing intensive um, all of the Brahmaviharas actually, for a few months, and I was, begin, was beginning with metta, with loving kindness. And I was asked to, I got to the point in the practice where I was asked to direct metta to a difficult person who, um, in the old style translations from the Buddhist text, is known as the enemy. So it's got a certain melodramatic tone to it. You know, like now you're going to send metta to your enemy. Now, practicing in Burma was very interesting for many reasons. Um, One of which is that it is such a traditional culture. And um, the practice of the Brahma Viharas, and say metta, since that's what I was practicing at the time, is taught in that traditional viewpoint, which is that Um, We practice definitely for the purification of our own minds to transform, and we can, the base of motivation, the reservoir of motivation that we tend to be acting from in life. So if that's been fear, it can become love. If that's been hostility, it can become compassion. So that is, is taught as the primary effect of doing metta. And it's also taught that metta is like a force, it's like an energy. So that you can feel it in a room when people have been practicing it. You can feel it around someone when they've been practicing it. And if you are the recipient of the metta, you can feel it. That it makes a difference, actually. It has the potential to make a difference as this, this energy. It's not to say that it's done with attachment because it needs to be done instead with great equanimity. It's like giving somebody a gift. You know, They may not like it, 
for reasons that have nothing to do with the beauty and the extraordinary quality of generosity that you've just displayed. So you can't say, well, I'm sending you metta so that you will do this or that. But it's a force. It's taught very much so that it's an energy and that a person has the potential of receiving it at any rate. So there I was practicing, and I got to the place where I was told, okay, now you know, go back to your room and do metta for an enemy. So I thought of somebody, um, I wouldn't call him an enemy, but I, I thought of somebody that I had some difficulty with, and I began sending the metta, and then I found myself thinking, well, maybe I'd better not choose that person, because you know, what if I get really concentrated and my metta gets very strong? And they are just sitting there, surrounded by these waves of bliss that are just hitting them, all because I am in Burma, where it's 105 degrees, and you know, I am suffering terribly in this place, so they can be happy? I don't think so, you know? <laughs> and then I thought of somebody else that seemed a little bit more palatable <laughs> in that, but my mind came up with the same objection. I mean, after all, this was the list of people I found difficult, you know. And I kept doing that until finally I just had to start laughing at myself. It's the same mind state that says, may almost all beings in the universe be happy. You know, if you just skip over here and there, it would be better. But like metta or loving-kindness, mudita or sympathetic joy is really boundless. It's we who draw the lines that say them and not them. But slowly, as we practice, that, that tremendous force of, of discrimination, of separation, does ease. It does begin to get eradicated. And then we can feel more happiness in the happiness of others. And then we have the habit, very often, of demeaning. And we look at somebody else's happiness or joy and we think, they didn't really deserve it. You know, if I had gotten the trophy, I would have deserved it, but they didn't really deserve it, or they didn't do that well, you know, it was a bad year. So, you know, I mean, they won, but it was almost by default, you know. And like, <laughs> You know, they didn't really deserve it. And I remember once when, uh, uh, one February, when the Winter Olympics were on television, and Sylvia Borstein and I were teaching a course here. And, um, when I go home sometimes, I would turn on the television and I would look at the Olympics, and we were completely hysterical at one point because every time a non-American contender was doing something like dancing on ice, the, the announcers would be quite demeaning, you know, and here would be this person dancing on ice, and, and the announcers would say something like, lacks artistry, <laughs> and you'd think, give me a break, <laughs> you know, the person is doing this incredible feat, but just time after time after time, just looking for what was wrong, for what was at fault, what wasn't good enough, what could be, what could be put down in this particular performance. It's an amazing trait. It's not that unfamiliar. And again, it's like 
being determined not to be trapped in the same old ways. We see those habits of mind coming. And we don't have to dislike ourselves for them or get angry about it, but we don't have to go further and further and further and further into the same kind of habit. Really it comes because we feel deprived, we feel resentful, we feel embittered in some way that we don't have enough and therefore we need to put others down in order to feel better. But that's all based on an idea of the good things in life being static and owned, that they're possessed by others. It doesn't have to be in a material sense. It could be a quality like faith or love. You know, someone else has it and I don't. To counteract that, we practice generosity. And most particularly in uh, this tradition, we practice generosity in the form of sharing merit, which I don't know if anyone's talked about that before, but um, merit is another one of those words that's a little strange, but because it doesn't mean stuff. It's not like something that's stored somewhere in a, a warehouse or a storehouse. But merit is, it's a little bit like the meta um, quality that I was just talking about. It's the belief that when we turn our mind to the good and when we do an action that honors that, that alliance, that connection with goodness, then it generates a force. It generates an energy that's real. That's called merit. So that in Burma, when somebody comes to offer a meal, they experience that as an act that's very meritorious. And then they share the merit at the end. They offer it. They dedicate it. Um, very often it's dedicated to someone who's died because it's believed very strongly that it's a force, a quality of energy that um, cuts through the loss of connection through the physical body. And it's shared, the merit is shared with all beings everywhere. So that when we act to the good, it's not just for us. It's never just for us. It's that recognition that our happiness is also for the sake of others. If we can practice that, then their happiness does not seem so much a threat to us, but really part of the same continuum it's very traditional in Buddhism to share the merit at the end of a sitting, at the end of a day, certainly at the end of a retreat, at the end of an act of generosity, and to actually feel the energy of the goodness. It's not yours personally, but it's moving through you in a sense. And to offer that, to dedicate that to those who've helped you to those who need help, to all beings everywhere, so that you're continually cycling in that way. And the merit comes from, from that intention or that alliance. It doesn't come, say, for example, sometimes people will say, I don't know if I got any merit out of this retreat, you know, because uh, I couldn't concentrate at all. It doesn't come from something like concentration. It comes from the fact that you sat here comes from the fact that you tried. It comes from the fact that you began again the millionth time when your mind wandered. That's where the force is. That's the movement of the mind toward the good. 
if we practice something like sharing merit, then those lines we draw between the special few and all of the others will begin to fall away. And we begin to see more that, in fact, we are all connected. We are all working together in some strange way, some unfathomable way toward toward happiness or toward freedom. We may be the one performing the action, but it needs to be connected to an understanding of how fragile all beings are. And here is the, the main ally of sympathetic joy, which is compassion. Since everything is so very tenuous and changing all of the time. We can look at somebody and their great good fortune, but everything in life in this world is like a house of cards. It's all conditions coming together, which could change. So we look at somebody almost with the heartfelt wish, like, may you enjoy it, because it's likely not forever, not undiluted, not unhindered. Upandita, when I was practicing, when I got through metta and compassion and was practicing sympathetic joy, he gave me this exercise in Burma. He said, imagine you're sitting in a room and your enemy is sitting there in a chair in front of you. And the whole room is crowded with other people, all of whom you like. And all of these people that you like are heaping praise on this person that you don't like. And then he said, how do you feel? (laughs) That was my exercise. And it's difficult, but... The truth is that compassion is our doorway. That's how we get there. Because nobody is immune from change and distress and disturbance and suffering in life. Nobody. In fact, there are very few beings that we would look at sitting in that imaginary chair and think, may you only suffer. May you never have an occasion of, of openness, of freedom, of release. It doesn't serve us, just as it doesn't serve them to only suffer. And if we can remember the truth of things and the quivering or the trembling of the heart, which is compassion, then it will guide us through to sympathetic joys that we will appreciate and take delight in the happiness and the good fortune of others. We will be glad that beings are experiencing this. This is also what we work for, not only for ourselves, but for them too. And compassion and sympathetic joy are a great balance for one another. They complement one another. Mudita reminds us of joy, reminds us of the existence of happiness when we're lost in sorrow. 
And compassion reminds us of the existence of pain when we're lost in denial. If we only look toward what's good and pleasant and happy, then it can easily degenerate into a sort of sentimentality. And if we only look towards what's difficult and what's painful and what's wrong in the world, we'll get crushed. We won't actually be able to have compassion because we'll just be overwhelmed. And so we need to be able to turn our attention to look at the joy, to see the small things in life, the flowers growing by the side of the road, in order to balance out that tendency to look at the suffering. So they will guard each other, they will reinforce each other and take care of each other. I think I'll close with this um, quotation which reminds me very much of this the sense of, of oneness and connection which is the basis of being able to practice sympathetic joy. It's from Susan Griffin and the um, text is called Woman and Nature. And she writes, We say that you cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say that everything is moving, and we are part of this motion. The soil is moving, that the water is moving. We say that the earth draws water to her from the clouds. We say the rainfall parts in each side of the mountain like the parting of our hair, and that the shape of the mountain tells where the water has passed. We say this water washes the soil from the hillsides, that the rivers carry sediment, that rain, when it splashes, carries small particles, that the soil itself flows with water and streams underground. We say that water is taken up into the roots of plants, into stems, that it washes down hills into rivers, that these rivers flow to the sea, that from the sea and the sunlight this water rises to the sky. This water is carried into clouds and comes back as rain, comes back as fog, comes back as dew, as wetness in the air. We say everything comes back. You cannot divert the river from the riverbed. We say every act has its consequences. This place has been shaped by the river, and the shape of this place tells the river where to go. We say, look how the water flows from this place and returns as rainfall. Everything returns, we say, and one thing follows another. There are limits, we say, on what can be done, and everything moves. We are all a part of this motion, we say, and the way of the river is sacred, and this grove of trees is sacred, and we ourselves, we tell you, are sacred. So let's sit together for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.